it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade today. A big thank you to Brian for allowing me to uh, sit and see. I appreciate that. Um, we've got a really good show for you. We've got Great guests uh, and and just just a, a really good show a plan for you, and we're going to start off this hour with Tom Bevan. Tom is the co-founder and the president of RealClearPolitics.com, and it is all about the debates this morning. Tom Bevan, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hello. Hey, Mary. How are you? I'm doing just great. It is all about the debates today, isn't it? Uh, we had three yesterday. We had the Oz Fetterman debate. We had the Hochul Zeldin debate and the Whitmer Dixon debate as well. I think from what I've seen online, and I, you know, I always when I watch these debates, and I always like also have social media up just to see what the comments, so I can track how people are viewing it. And I'll tell you, I I really think the Oz Fetterman debate was hands down the most watched debate of the night. Do you agree? Oh, it might be the most watched debate of the cycle. I mean, I, I watched it. I think there were a lot of people who, who were watching it outside of Pennsylvania. And I, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of viewers in Pennsylvania tuned in to see for themselves, whether they thought, uh, you know, Fetterman is, is up to the job or not. And that's exactly what it was. It was kind of I, I, almost like a morbid curiosity that people wanted to see because one side's telling us that this guy is not fit for the job. And the media, for the most part, of course, carrying the water for the Democrats is like, oh, he's fine. And if you question it, what do they always do? They put an ist or an ism. Your ear, it's, it's ableism, you know, or it's racism or it's anti-Semitism or fill in the blank. So now it's ableism to question whether John Fetterman has the mental capacity to be able to serve in the office. But his performance last night, did he help or hurt his cause? Oh, I mean, I, there's no way that debate helped him. And the question is, is how bad did it hurt him? I mean, it was... You know, it was hard to watch at, at moments. He struggled with, you know, putting together sentences. He talked almost no specifics. Um, it was just, it was a really, it, it had me questioning whether he should have done that at all. I mean, he could have skipped those debates, and he would have taken some hits for that. Um, but at, at least it would have left open the idea of his health and whether it was a, you know, his fitness, but, but I think he removed all doubt last night for, for a lot of folks that he's just simply not up to the job. I mean, it was, again, it was pretty hard to watch, uh, at, at times he really did struggle. And, um, there's just, there's, I, I, I can't imagine anybody who is undecided who watched that and said, yeah, um, I'm going to vote for Fetterman after that. I mean, it really was a, it really was a sort of a stunning, uh, performance. Yeah, it was. And some of the comments and you talked to, to about him not debating, you know, you have 
in the uh, Mastriano Shapiro race for the Pennsylvania governor's seat, you have Shapiro, the Democrat, refusing to um, to to debate. And that seems to work for Democrats. Democrats can get away with not debating, whereas I don't think the same grace would be given to Republicans who don't want to debate. Democrats can get away with that. And Republicans would be running, of course, if they chose not to debate. That would be a big, um, a big ding for them. Why, um, why did his team, do you think his team allowed him to do this? Because they knew his his uh, his capacity. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's the question. I mean, Maybe they felt they they had to after they committed to it, and you know when they committed to it a few weeks ago, they thought he or hoped that he would be you know his recovery would progress and he'd be up to the job. I don't know. Quite frankly, it seemed like again this is hindsight, but it seemed like political malpractice to put him out on that stage um, and in that environment. And you know they tried to downplay expectations. They released this statement before the debate saying he's going to lose and this is not his format, but he's ultimately going to win this race. Um, and then they tried to spin it afterwards. I mean, his campaign manager, you know, dropping F-bombs and, and really being sort of aggressive and saying he had a great performance. I mean, it's just it's it's just absolutely the whole thing is bizarre. Um, and again, it's it's the one thing that may come out of it, though. I mean, it, I do think even even Republicans, uh, you know, he, he engendered a certain amount of sympathy because it was so yeah. hard to watch. Um, but again, how many votes is that going to win for him as opposed to the number of votes he lost by, by showing up last night? Um, I, I just don't see how it works out in his favor. And this is a race that was already very, very close. Now, you know, John Fetterman has been famous for saying that he's against fracking. And so he was asked that question, which, by the way, just as a side note, kudos to the hosts of that debate. Those two moderators, they kept that moving. I think they did a wonderful job in moderating that debate so much better than what I've seen on, you know, one of the mainstream, you know, like ABC, NBC, CBS, one of the big networks. I think they did a phenomenal job. Um, Here's John Fetterman, though, when he was asked about his stance on fracking. I absolutely support fracking. You have made two conflicting statements regarding fracking. In a 2018 interview, you said, quote, I don't support fracking at all. I never have. But earlier this month, you told an interviewer, quote, I support fracking. Oh. Uh, I, I, I do support fracking. And I don't, I don't, I support fracking and I stand and I do support fracking. That was just painful to watch. And that is one of the most talked about moments from that debate. Yeah, it was it was probably his worst moment. Although, I mean, even as he started the debate, you know, he said good night everybody. I mean, it was just yeah. there were a number of other moments where, you know, I was watching the debate with my wife and we were kind of looking at each other like, "Oh, that didn't sound good. That didn't make any sense." Um, you know, and and so again, um it's hard to see how this debate helped him in any way in a race that was already that's already very tight and had been closing uh, in Oz's direction here over the past few weeks, the polls have shown him gaining on, on Fetterman. I would expect that uh, trend to continue. I mean, I guess the one saving grace for Fetterman is early voting, which has already been going on in Pennsylvania for a couple weeks. If he's already banked a lot of his a lot of his vote. But I, I still suspect there were plenty of folks who were, you know, undecided, who wanted to hold out and see for themselves, uh, you know, whether he was up to the job. And I just I can't imagine there are many people who came away uh, thinking that he was after that performance last night. 
Dr. Oz did have a cringeworthy moment, I thought, last night, and I actually made a note on it, uh, when he was asked about uh, abortion. And he said there should not be involvement. They, he was asked if he would support uh, a national bill. I think it's Lindsey Graham who wants to put this bill up that would put a national bill, uh, a national abortion law, at 15 weeks and uh, with exceptions for rape and incest. And Oz said there should not be involvement from the federal government in how states decide their abortion physicians. He said, I don't want them, and he went on to say, I don't want the federal government involved with that at all. I want women, doctors, local political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive, to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. When he said local political leaders in the room, I just cringed. And, and I know it was a total slip up for, from him, from him, he, you know, he, it could have been worded so much better. And then later on in the debate, he caught himself and he said, you know, I want the, the women of Pennsylvania to be able to decide what's best for them, which what should have been the line. He's kind of getting blowback on that. But I think and you may correct me, but I, I think it's because it really was his only kind of screw up in the debate last night. Yeah, I mean, he said in that answer that he wouldn't support a federal ban and that it was, he, he said it was up to the States. He wanted it to be up to the States. He said it four or five or six times in that answer, but you're right. In that one, in that one phrase, instead of saying for the States to decide, he said local political leaders. And that's what folks really jumped on and said, Oh, he's going to have the mayor in the you know delivery room with you and, and you know, city council and all that. Um, yeah. And so he is facing some, some, that that's the one soundbite that came out of that debate, which I think uh, Democrats are going to try and use against him, and we'll see whether that works or not. But but overall, I agree with you. I mean, I thought I thought his performance was pretty strong. Um, not as I mean, he wasn't as polished as as I think some people expected him, being a sort of a professional TV personality. Um, he moved very fast. Uh, he was talking very fast. He was trying to get out his points. He did have more specifics than Fetterman on some some issues. Um, and, uh, so I think all in all, he, he acquitted himself, uh, fairly well. Oz's problem is, is more of a likability thing, right? He's particularly among, again, moderates, independents, even some Republicans, his favorability ratings are not where they should be for a candidate. Um, and so I think I'm not, you know, that's really a subjective thing. If, If voters tuned in and thought, you know, they like him more after the debate than before the debate, then, then he, it was a success for him. Yeah. Um, but we don't. We won't know until we get some more data to see whether uh, any of those attitudes about him changed. Uh, I, I, we don't have a lot of time, so I want to move on to the Hochul Zeldin debate last night. There is a moment that a lot of people are talking about regarding crime, and you knew that Zeldin was going to hit Kathy Hochul on crime. This is that moment. Take a listen. The first day that I'm in office, I'm going to declare a crime emergency and suspend Castle's bail and these other pro-criminal laws because there is a crime emergency. My opponent thinks that right now there's a polio emergency going on, but there's not a crime emergency. Different priorities that I'm hearing from people right now, they're not being represented from this, this governor, who still, to this moment, we're at, what are we, halfway through the debate? She still hasn't talked about locking up anyone committing any crimes. Anyone who commits a crime... Under our laws, especially with the change they made to bail, has consequences. I don't know why that's so important to you. All I know is that we could do more. That line, I don't know why that's so important to you, is everywhere. Uh, sh- did she lose the debate with that one sentence? She might have. I mean, that that is, you know, these debates are, they often, um, 
are uneventful and don't really change the dynamic of the race. And then there are other ones like the ones we just the one we just talked about where, you know, the the Oz Fetterman where they're very, I think they're very important to the outcome of the race, uh, particularly when you're dealing with a health health issue. But there are debates where you know you get a soundbite takeaway from the debate, and it it is a game changer. And I think this might be one. Because the issue of crime is one that is resonating with folks, not just in New York, but all around the country, um, and she appeared to be you know, out of touch on that issue. And so this is a race, again, that, that we've moved into the toss-up category. Uh, the polls have tightened considerably. It seems like Lee Zeldin has the, has the momentum here. Uh, and so I don't think she did herself any favors down the stretch uh, with that response. And again, I suspect you'll see that in advertisements in the not-too-distant future. Yeah. Uh, on behalf of Lee Zeldin. Overall, do you think that there was one debate? I, I know we really haven't gotten into the Gretchen Whitmer uh, Tudor Dixon debate. Out of that one, was the was getting uh, Gretchen Whitmer to say that she would not mandate vaccines for children, COVID vaccines for children. Um, so that that was the big moment out of there. Out of those three debates, do you think there was one that really moved the needle one way or the other for voters? I think the Oz Fetterman debate is the one. I mean, you know, I just tweeted about this earlier. I mean, if you go look at, again, we don't have any polling data. It'll take a few days for that to sort itself out. But if you go look at the at the betting markets, um, predictit.com, for example, dial up this race, you'll find that, that it moved dramatically. Uh, the people who are actually betting money on who's going to win this race, Fetterman dropped like 20 cents and, and Oz went up. I mean, it's, it's a pretty dramatic move. And so I think uh, – for, again, for all the reasons we already mentioned, even beyond policy, just the, the baseline question of, you know, is he up to the job or not? I mean, a lot of times, you know, it's just it's just a matter of clearing the bar. Herschel Walker in Georgia, for example, I think expectations were low for him. He cleared that bar. He actually acquitted himself better than people thought. You know, I fully expected Fetterman to go on last night with the expectations as low as they were and, and managed to muddle through and, you know, carry on his campaign. I don't think he did that. And I think I think we're going to see that uh, reflected in the data, uh, the polling data, as soon as we get some more of it here in a few days. Yeah, I, I cannot wait to see the polling data. And you, you got to follow Real Clear Politics because they've got it all so neatly compiled for you. So make sure you follow Real Clear Politics. If you, like me, just want to go, and I don't want to have to go to 10,000 places to find the important polls. So thank you for that. Uh, Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics. Follow him on Twitter, uh, Tom Bevan RCP. Thank you so much. I appreciate all your information. Absolutely. Thank you, Mary. 866-408-7669. Let's talk about the debates. If you watch any of them, did you listen to them? I do think you get a different impression if you watch a debate versus if you listen to a debate. And I'll tell you why, especially with the Fetterman-Oz debate, I think you could definitely walk away with different impressions because of the way Fetterman had to participate in that debate. But I want to hear from you, 866-408-7669. Your call's coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The fastest-growing talk show in America. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.
the fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. John, it's reprehensible, but it's also reflective of your approach to doing these things. You haven't shown up on the campaign trail. You haven't answered questions from voters, not once on the campaign trail. You haven't answered questions from media once on the campaign trail, even you know, just to show off that you could do it. And this is the only debate I could get you to come to talk to me on. And I had to beg on my knees to get you to come. And if it wasn't for Dennis probably getting involved, I don't think it would have happened. Yeah, that was Dr. Oz last night calling Fetterman out for agreeing to only one debate, which to his credit, he did because you have the Pennsylvania governor race and you have the Democrat there, uh, Shapiro, who is refusing to debate Mastriano. No, I'm not going to do it. Listen, they t- they're they taking their lead from Joe Biden. Joe Biden campaigned from the basement, right? Joe, Joe Biden was only trotted out every now and then with teleprompters and the whole bit. And it was a very, very, very controlled message. Right. And it worked. So I, I think you're going to see that more, especially coming from the Democrats, because they can get away with it. Right. They can get away with it. So uh, very quickly here, if, if you did not see uh, any of the debates or hear any of the debates. And as I said, it's different whether you see, seeing ver, watching a debate versus listening to a debate, because last night Fetterman had closed captioning and you could see him hesitate as he read the um the teleprompter and some people are like look his brain froze i'm like now if you if you're watching his eyes are moving and it was a couple of seconds behind so he's physically reading the teleprompter his brain didn't freeze and you know that's a problem because if you were listening to the debate and not watching it you would have thought that fetterman you know fell asleep like joe biden you're like Hello, sir. But he was he was reading it. And I I don't know what he does. This is a problem because I don't know what he does if he doesn't have a teleprompter in front of him to tell him what someone is saying to him. How does he process? How does he function with this? Um, And even then, his thought process was definitely compromised. I, I, I felt bad. You heard you heard Tom Bevan say he garnered some sympathy. He did. I actually felt badly for him last night. My husband and I were watching it going, this this is wrong. This is really bad. So coming up, I'm going to get your calls because I wanted to give you more time. I really didn't have enough time here to, to give you enough to be able to say your piece, uh, watched, listens, what you thought of, of different debates. And also, we've got some reaction coming up from a CNN panel on the Fetterman-Oz debate and what they saw. That is all coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I, I, I just am I'm just still astounded. I'm still stunned by what I witnessed tonight. And that, uh, you know, and this is, and they should have had more debates, by the way. The question that I found myself asking is, is the way that he's struggling a result of the stroke, or is it because he doesn't have a grasp on the issues? He was asked a very direct question about his position on fracking. He could not explain why he fundamentally 180 changed his position on it. You know, for anyone who is coming into this totally undecided, if you drop a voter into Harris who had no engagement with this beforehand, it's hard to see them coming away terribly, terribly convinced by Mike mm-hmm. Betterman there. Wow. 
First of all, I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade, uh, if you're just joining us. That was a CNN panel. There was Charlie Dent, uh, who's former uh, Pennsylvania representative, uh, Republican, Alyssa Farah, who is allegedly a Republican, and uh, Tobin Marcus. And, you know, this is on CNN, which um, you don't expect to hear something like that. So in my mind, okay, it was really bad for CNN to say that uh, about Fetterman. 866-408-7669. Let's get to your calls and see what you have to say about any of the debates. Last night there were three. You had Whitmer Dixon, uh, you had Hochul Zeldin, and of course Fetterman Oz. Let's go to Oregon. Bob, you're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hello. Good morning, Mary. First thing I want to say is you're doing great. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. So I'm going to go ahead and reveal a bit of myself to the world out there because I want to help people make a good decision. I have brain injury myself. I have good days. I have bad days. I do. I follow the same pattern sometimes as Fetterman does. And I'm telling everybody, take this into consideration from somebody that's going to tell on himself. Do not. I would not want myself to be elected as an official in politics. And you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, um, I mean, I understand that brain injuries affect everyone differently. Some people have mobility issues. Others have auditory issues as, as John Fetterman does. Uh, he clearly, I, I think also has verbal issues. It's not just what he's hearing, but I think he also has a problem processing and getting the words out. So he may, um, be, I mean, like mentally be able to do it. He just can't get it out. Is that a possibility or is what we are seeing is his inability to get the thoughts together? Based on my own personal data, I will say, I believe it's his own inability and I'm not shaming him at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is, it's brain injury is a serious thing, whether it's a stroke, concussions, you know, uh, oxygen deprivation, whatever. There are significant effects to the uh, to the brain, and it just, in my personal opinion, the voters need to take that into account. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing and being so open and honest because I do think it's something. There, there's no shame in it, right? As you said, there, there's there's no shame in it. Uh, he didn't choose to have a stroke. That's something you have no control. He had a stroke. Um, how it affects everyone is different, and so is the path to recovery. But clearly at this point in time, I think we saw last night that he is not, as you said, in the position for public office at this time. Thank you so much, Bob. I appreciate that. Let's head to Tennessee and say hello to Roger. You're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi, Roger. Hey, good morning, Mary. Hi. Go ahead. Well, I think that the uh, hide in the basement routine is uh, going away a little bit. And I think that Fetterman's group uh, looked at Carrie Lake and Katie Hobbs out there and seen what happened when she didn't want to debate. And there's a few other uh, people Ah. that refused to debate. And I think uh, that's going to draw some of them out. And it should. They should be held accountable for what they've said. That is an 
excellent point about what Carrie Lake is doing out. Yeah, Carrie Lake, you know, calling out uh, Hobbs, her opponent, uh, you know, saying, you know, you're too chicken. She has, she actually brought a big chicken to one of her um, <laughs> one of her her rallies. You know, she said, oh, look, look who's here. Katie Hobbs is here, and this big chicken comes out on the stage and does does the chicken dance. You know, she does not. I I like Carrie Lake. If nothing else, I love her gutsiness and I love her ability to not really be a politician, to just put it out there. That's a phenomenal point, Roger. I still think, though, all that being said, I think allowing him to debate was just abusive to him. I really do. Thank you, Roger. There, and if you watched on social media, a lot of people were saying, and I, and I saw, I wish I could remember who said this. I don't remember who tweeted this, and I apologize for not remembering who it was. But they said, what do, what do Jill Biden and Giselle Fetterman have in common? Answer, they both love power more than they love their husbands. And I thought, wow, that's harsh. But think about it. How many times have we said that, you know, Jill Biden allowing this to happen to her husband is elder abuse. She knows he's got problems, right? And she keeps, you know, she allowed this to happen. She didn't say no anywhere along the line. And it's, it's painful. You know, watching the debate last night was painful. And I would hope that if that were me, my spouse would take me to the side and say, look, you just don't have the capacity to do this. This isn't going to end well. This is going to be bad. And I would have hoped that someone who loves me would have the the ability, the the thoughtfulness, whatever you want to call it, to look at me and be honest with me and tell me the truth. So don't go out there and make, you know, make a fool of myself. It was painful. Gene, listening on the Fox app in Houston, Gene. You're next up on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Good morning, Mary. How are you doing? <laughs> uh, good, good, Gene. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, like, you know, many people, uh, I didn't see the debate. So what we do is, you know, you go on YouTube and type in uh, Fetterman debate and all these, uh, the choices come up. And what I was looking at was the little 10 o'clock uh, news on the local news all around the country, just a oh. little two minute blurb, and none of them had anything uh, any of uh, fetterman's gaffes it was It was very, very evident that they didn't like us so wait so they didn't have fetterman's gaps so what did they show did they show edited clips tightly cut clips what did they uh, yeah show? well it was just you know tonight the oz fetterman debate and then they just showed a few little clips and it was you know they didn't show anything like you know the good night everyone and all that kind of stuff you know it was it was very uh disheartening <laughs> yeah when he said that the first thing off i was like this is not going to go well i know what he meant he meant to say good evening Right. I mean, he, you know, uh, probably that's probably Anything where he's going. Good night. I right. figured he was going to say good night and then just walk off the stage. Yeah. And and I, I was I was hoping you were said you had listened to it, because if you had listened to it, Fetterman's inability and the, the need for the teleprompter hindered him for people who were not watching, who were listening to it because the teleprompter was a, a second behind sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, and you could see him looking up at it and it kind of looked like he was staring into the distance and, and he was still reading. 
So that definitely was a, was a hindrance to him, in, in my opinion. Gene, thank you. I, I appreciate you joining us. 866-408-7669. Now, the Fetterman campaign did claim that there was a problem with the closed captioning. And we'll tell you what the company who ran the debate, Nextstar ran that, and we'll tell you what they had to say about Fetterman's campaign's claims about the closed captioning. And I will get more of your calls coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The Brian Kilmeade Show, sponsored by Crunch Fitness. Interested in owning your own business in a growing $30 billion industry? Check out Crunch Fitness at crunch.com. More of The Brian Kilmeade Show coming up. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. Also, I wanted to let you know that um, I do have a podcast. Um, People have asked me. I have a podcast. You can catch it on YouTube and on Getter, and we'll be launching on Spotify and Apple Podcasts coming up hopefully this weekend as well. It's called Mary Walter Radio. There's two of them. Thursdays is Mary Walter Radio, 715 Eastern Time. That's political. And Tuesdays, Life with Mary Walter, 715, is everything but politics. So that's a fun podcast if you need a break from politics. And Thursdays, the more dig into the politics where we do stories that you're probably not being told and you probably haven't heard. So I like to do some more obscure stories there. So um, you can catch me there. So Nextar ran the debate. And here's the thing. Fetterman's communications director, Joe Cavallo, uh, criticized uh, the his criticized the said the Fetterman did well, but criticized the closed captioning. He said he did well despite errors with closed captioning. And um, he said uh, he was working off of delayed captions filled with errors. Well, Nextar said that is not true. And he said that the Democrat, that Fetterman did not utilize all the opportunities he was given to practice before the debate. Both candidates were offered two rehearsals. Uh, Oz did two rehearsals. Fetterman chose to do only one. And the communications chief for Nextstar said the production team went to extraordinary lengths to ensure the effectiveness of the closed captioning process and to accommodate several last-minute requests to the Fetterman campaign. It functioned as expected during rehearsal and again during the debate, and we regret that he and his campaign feel otherwise. So, and it was hard. Let me tell you, he, he had to sit there and he had to read. And because of the time constraints, you know, outline, outline your, uh, your, uh, how you, how you would beat inflation. What's your economic plan to beat inflation? You have 60 seconds. It's just like, what? So, uh, Oz was speaking somewhat quickly and they had to get that into the closed captioning so that Oz, so that Fetterman could read it and could respond. So I actually think it was harder for Fetterman that, that, format was not easy for him at all. Uh, Molly Hemingway was on with Laura Ingram and she talked about, about something that I had just said about how I wish like my husband would pull me to the side and go, okay, you're going to have to pull out of this race because this, because of the stroke, you just can't do it. Like be totally honest with me. Here's Molly Hemingway. I do not feel bad for the people around Fetterman. I do feel very bad for Fetterman, but 
I am actually appalled at the people around Fetterman, that they did not protect yeah, him or point. love him more. He has family members. Um, if this had happened to me, I would pray that the people around me would love me enough to not put me through this. This was this is very bad for them, for the Democrat Party, and it's an embarrassment to the people of Pennsylvania. They deserve far better than this. And I think a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people felt that way uh, when, when, when you watch John Fetterman. The sad thing is early voting, and this is why his campaign, I think, pushed back the debate as far as they possibly could to get as many votes in in early voting because Democrats love putting their, their ballots in the mail, you know, along with a $500, you know, five ones uh, in there as well because, you know, it'll make it to its destination. Uh, but they, they love early voting. And so this way they could get as many votes as they can before the debate. 866-408-7669. Let's head to Charlottesville, Virginia. Mike listening on WCHV. You are on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hello. Hello, Wendy. Good morning to you. Uh, Huge fan, huge fan. Can I ask right out of the gate without um, going under Fetterman, what happened uh, with you leaving WMAL? I, I had surgery. I was gone about nine months to and from D.C., and there's no more Mary Walters in the morning. Uh, yeah. What happened? Well, well, that, listen, I'm not going to I'm not going to discuss that now here. If that's not fair to, to Brian's show or Brian's listeners, because there are people who do want to talk about the topic. So do you have something to say about the, the debates? Sorry to change subjects on you. Good to know you have a podcast. Uh, last night uh, was an absolute debacle and reconfirming. Uh, you, you cannot have one uh, incompetent uh, as he is uh, in office. And the perfect example is what with, with Trump and Biden. Uh, people are going on their feelings rather than the, yes. the source of who's, who's the best for the job. Uh, it was an embarrassment for him and his team. He literally sounded like the the drunk at the end of the bar. The way he you know, he would yell and interrupt Oz. It was it was you know you felt bad for him because he just he's not there. You know you're the first one to bring that up. I'm so glad you brought that up, Mike. And 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 thank you for understanding why I don't want to delve into the other topic during you know Brian's show. Um, he he did every now and then yell out inappropriately, and I thought it was so. It, it was very odd it it didn't it was not like a normal you know interruption you hear at a debate it was just like this shout from the guy over on the other side it was it was very did you at all feel any sympathy for him though god it, it's hard because you know as a human you feel bad for anyone that has uh, right. a, a medical in, incapacity yeah. you do but i think if you take it back even before he had the stroke he, he, he's a clown, and his record shows that. He's a trust fund baby. He doesn't have any record to run on. And, again, it, it goes back to people going on emotion. It is, you know, uh, orange man bad. I'm going to vote for Biden just because. You, you don't look at the big picture, and that's what we have here. There, and, and I know from just listening to your show, some of the people that have called in um, and, and people you've spoken with that, you know, Oz doesn't have the, um, the best reputation with a lot of the Pennsylvanian. But my goodness, the art, the, the, um, my goodness, apologies. I'm, I'm sounding like him. Um, the, um, the, the articulate, the, his, his, uh, demeanor, 
he's he's just he's just spot on. He's so in cue. He's such a great debater. And he, he even went outside of politics last night and even explained, look, I'm, I'm going with my heart. I'm going with what's best for the Pennsylvanians. And that was, you know, it was a home run. He was just you know, enjoyable to watch because he's so fit for that for that position. And yeah. I hope. I hope that state sees that, and I don't. You know, I don't want to take up your lot of time, but uh, again, um, it, it, it was it was just one and done last night. It really, really ended his uh, run. I think. I, I think we're going to find out, uh, Mike. Thank you, and thank you for bringing up the fact that you know Fetterman every now and then just shouted because I had I had forgotten about that. Thank you. Have a have a great day. Here's the thing, though. I I did see so many people on Twitter. I'm following social media. I'm looking at different comments, you know, who just say, well, Oz is a carpetbagger. Oz isn't from Pennsylvania. Well, Hillary Clinton wasn't from New York, but she ran, you know, she sat her butt down in Chappaqua and, you know, and then ran for Senate and say, oh, look, I'm going to represent New York. And the Democrats applauded and elected her. Okay, so. A little consistency would be nice. That's all I'm asking for. And how long do you have to live in a state before you're no longer considered a carpetbagger? And if they have great ideas and great policies, does that matter if they moved there recently? I don't know. I kind of would like the guy with the best policies. That's just me. I'm crazy that way. I don't vote based on personality. I lo- And I don't v- vote based on party either. I am not a registered Republican. I look at your policies and I look at what you're saying to me and I look at your past performance and, and Mike brought up uh, Fetterman's past performance in Braddock. The mayor of Braddock was awful. Crime went up, businesses folded, people moved out, people left. It was terrible. He, uh, he doesn't have a record to run on. And Oz brought that up last night as well. All that being said, I do feel bad for Fetterman because of the fact that it was so fast-paced. He was always like a second or so behind because he's trying to read the teleprompter, and I think that hurt him greatly. We'll find out, though, won't we, after the election. I'm Mary Walter in for Brian Kilmeade on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Good night, everybody. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Yes, I'm Mary Walter sitting in the seat for Brian Kilmeade. Thank you, Brian, for uh, trusting me with your show. I'll try not to break it. A lot to talk about. A lot of great guests. Let's start off with Tom Homan, Fox News contributor, former acting ICE director. He's also with the Heritage Foundation. He's a visiting fellow there. Tom Homan, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Hi, Mary. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm so glad you're with us. The border, my goodness, uh, hot, hot, hot. The Biden administration does what all administrations do when they have bad news. They dump it late on a Friday night. And late on Friday night, we got the numbers for fiscal year uh, 2022 for September. And it's a record high number of border encounters occurred. Was this surprising to anybody? No, I, look, I think the reason they, they released it on Friday night is because we did a press release that morning. Um, myself, Mark Morgan, who was the CBP commissioner of Trump, and Ken Cuccinelli, who was the deputy secretary, we did a press release saying that they didn't release it by a certain time. 
that we release it because we have our own sources from the CBP. We know the numbers out before the secretary knows. Mm-hmm. So we threatened them, you know, because we felt they were going to hold those numbers till after the midterms. You know, some of these reports come out, you know, three or four weeks late. We don't trust them. So we says either you produce the numbers or we're going to, and all of a sudden, boom, less than 24 hours later, the numbers come out. So, and again, in, in the middle of the night, you know, after you know, 10 p.m. to make sure that, you know, the media outlets don't have time to respond. Yeah, and what's interesting to me is we're starting to see some coverage from more um, supportive of the administration news sources. You're starting to see a little bit, but not to the degree that it should be. So I asked this question, and I know we've spoken in the past, and I asked this question, so I'm going to ask it again because I still don't understand it. Why is the administration allowing this to happen? You're, you're at the end of his. If we're on this path, if we stay on this path, you're talking eight million people in this country that we know of illegally. What is the end game for the Democrats? How does this play out well for them? Well, they, they, they obviously perceive a future political benefit out of this, right? I think there's two things, right? First of the ideology, you know, this president sold out to the progressives. To win the election, he knew he needed their votes, so he sold out to them. And they want open borders. You know, people like AOC, they, they just don't believe in borders at all. And I think a, a bigger part of it is that they perceive a, p- a future political benefit. What I mean by that? Well, first of all, they think their future Democratic voters is millions of people coming across. But I've said for a long time, they don't have to vote. Because remember, when Biden signed over ninety executive orders abolishing everything that we created. He also overturned the Trump census rule, which means millions of people will be counted in the next census in sanctuary cities, which is going to result in what? More seats in the House for the Dems. This is about – they sold this country out for future political power. There's no no doubt in my mind because I challenge any – anybody, including progressives or independents, you give me one one reason. What's the downside on illegal immigration – on securing the border? What's the downside on securing the border? Give me a downside. There's going to be less uh, illegal immigration, less illegal drug flow, less women being sexually assaulted by the cartels, less children dying in the river, less Americans dying from drug overdoses. There's no downside in securing that border. There has to be for political purposes. I truly believe that. Yeah, no, I I think you're 100 percent right. But here's the rub. I wonder if it is backfiring on them. Uh, I just here's Henry Cuellar. He is a Democrat out of Texas. And here's what he told Fox News about the border. No, the border is not secure. When you have 1.7 million individuals last year and another 2.7, that's over four and a half million individuals encounter at the border. Plus, the if you add the getaways, that's going to be over five million individuals in just two years. No, the border is secure. It's not secured. And we got to make Make sure that we have repercussions. And this is a Democrat saying this. So have they gone too yeah. far? Well, Henry Cuellar, he's always been a brew dog. Even back in the days when I was an ice agent, he's always been supportive of border security because he controls an area right there along the border. So, you know, he's he's trying to protect his constituents because you see what's going on. These border towns are overrun. So uh, I think he's doing he's doing what he should be doing as a congressman, supporting his constituency on the border. He's trying to take care of them. He knows they're overrun. They know they've been affected by this. There's been a lot of sickness, a lot of death, a lot of high-speed chases. I mean, he's doing what he should be doing, which, you know, hats off to him. He's doing his job. He's not playing a political game with us. He's speaking the truth, and I, and I, and I salute him for it. Henry Cuellar has always been a blue dog. He's always believed in border security. But, you know, 
you don't hear others out, outwardly speaking about this, right? Except before elections, right? All of a sudden, Senator Kelly from Arizona, all of a sudden he cares about the border a month before the election. Mm-hmm. And you hear a lot of that. But after this election is over, you'll see all those people backing away and not saying a word. So you see the rise of Maya Flores. You see the move of Hispanics to the GOP. Is, did, do you think that the Democrats anticipated that? No, they didn't. And I think they took the Hispanic vote for, for you know, they, they, they took it for granted. Again, you know, the uh, people like Myra Flores, who lives on the border, her, she's actually married to a border patrol agent. Yeah. She sees what's going on every day. So, look, I think the Democrat Party has, has forgotten about those people. I, I think they're, uh, they're paying a the price now. I think you're going to see, I think, you know, people like, you know, look at President Trump. He got a big percentage of the Hispanic vote, specifically on the border. I think the border has been ignored by the Democrats. The, the people down there are sick and tired of open borders. They're sick and tired of the crime comes across that border. They're sick and tired of the cartels and having operational control of our borders. And, and I think now they're standing up and they're taking action. So God bless them. I'm glad they're doing it. Yeah. Now, um, they did reinstate one of uh, Trump's policies. Uh, Venezuelans are being expelled to Mexico until they get permission to come back into the U.S. or they get sent to another country because Venezuela is like, yeah, we don't want them back. You know, because they're such productive citizens and, and such hard workers, but we don't want them back. Um, why just Venezuelans? Well, I feel like that's smoking mirrors. Venezuelans, they're doing Venezuelans right now because Venezuelans a big percentage was coming across that border. And look, there's a cap on that. The, the, the cap is lower than what's actually coming across that border. And bottom line is, Venezuelans ain't going to wait down in Mexico. They're going to cross illegally. So rather than what they've been doing the last couple months, walk across the border and turn themselves over to border patrol agents, they're going to be part of those gotaways. They're going to come to this country. They're going to get away rather than turn themselves into border patrol. And, you know, it's one thing not, not, not a lot of people are talking about. We had 1.7 encounters last year, 2.7 this year. That's almost 4.5 million people entered the country illegally that were encountered. Let's not forget, over 1 million, 1 million people uh, crossed the border and got away. And that's not a guess. These are recorded by Border Patrol. There's sensor traffic, camera traffic, drone traffic. Border Patrol records this. So one million got away. So when administration tells whether the encounters went down this month by, you know, 10 percent, they really didn't. Maybe the encounters went down by 10 percent, but you better be, believe me that the, the gotaways just increased. The, the less encounters means more gotaways. So these Venezuelans now are going to start uh, adding to the gotaway numbers because they're going to come here regardless. They're not going away. The majority of them will not let Let's talk about those gotaways and 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 the people that have been caught. Record number of uh, people who are on the terror watch list have been arrested at the southern border. Fiscal year 2022, 98. The last five years combined was 26. Now people on the left will go, well, because the system's working, we caught them. But that's not true, right? Like they're just they're just trying to justify something that's unjustifiable. Well, it's just it's ignorant, right? I mean, under under four years of Trump, there's a total of 12, 12 in four years, and they got 98 in one year. And if they're catching 98, how many are getting away? So that's what scares the hell out of me. Who are these one million people that don't want to turn themselves in to claim asylum and be released with right. a paper in their hand? Right? They don't want to be. They want to turn themselves in. They got something to hide. They don't want to be fingerprinted. They don't want to be vetted. If they've arrested 98, how many of that one million? Uh, you know, are, are no respected terrorists. And people think it's zero. Look, Border Patrol's arrested people from 160 different countries. Many of these countries are sponsors to terrorism. If you don't think a single one of that one million gotaways came from the country that sponsored terrorism, then you just ignore the data. This is the biggest issue with the border right now. 
you know, Mark Morgan says, I've heard Mark say it many times in his interviews, that this just isn't immigration. And, and it's just not an immigration issue. It's about border security. And most importantly, it's about national security. When you create a humanitarian crisis of such huge proportions that draws 70% of agents off the line, that's when the drugs flow through. That's killed over 100,000 Americans. That's when the non-inspected terrorists coming through. After 9-11, we created all these databases, right, to try to prevent terrorists from the country like 9-11 people did. We got the visa security program. We got the no-fly list. We got the FBI screening database. The visa security program itself, within 10 years, stopped a couple thousand terrorists from getting in this country. But those databases mean nothing now or mean a lot less because why put yourself in a position to be vetted and fingerprinted to get right. a visa or an airline ticket when you can simply get to Mexico and cross the border the way one may understood. Right, exactly. And and it's wide open. But we, you talked about the deaths, record number of, of deaths, yet no one seems to care. And that to me is just unbelievable that no one seems to care. Um, so when you put all this together, you put together the rec- the fentanyl coming across the border, killing Americans. You talk about the terrorists coming across the border. You, um, you know, we have... Um, the record number of deaths, people dying because of Biden's policies, because it, 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 it lures people to take risks, children drowning in the Rio Grande. Is any of this an impeachable offense for Mayorkas? Well, I think, I'd say, I think Mayorkas needs to be impeached on day one. He, he, he violated his oath of office. His country's less safe under his command. He knows the same thing. Everything you and I are talking about right now, he knows how many non-inspected terrorists who were arrested, he knows how many probably got away. He knows his, port, his, his border is vulnerable to, to national security threats. As a secretary of Homeland Security, he knows over a million people got away. So at what point does the secretary of Homeland Security tell the White House, I can no longer support your open borders because it puts this country at great national security risk? He failed to do his job. He is a failure. And, and he's being impeached on day one. I, on his hands, over 100,000 Americans died in drug overdoses, and DEA says 95% of the fentanyl is coming across the southwest border. Why? Because 70% of agents are off the line. Right, right. And he's been impeached because there's been over 1,400 migrants dying on U.S. soil since he's been in office. So, so let me and, ask and I certainly. Not to interrupt you, but I, we don't have a lot of time. So I want to ask you because uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, apparently, it's being reported by the Washington Post that he told Punchbowl News that I don't think the country doesn't – I think the country doesn't like impeachment used for political purposes at all. He's ruling out impeachment um, when it comes to the administration. But yet when we hear what, – with the conversation we're having right now – I agree with you. Absolutely sounds like an impeachable offense. And you got to tell me Democrats wouldn't do it by now. And I'm not, okay, I get nobody wants the tit for tat thing, but sometimes you have to play the game your, the way your opponent is playing it in order to beat your opponent. So Look, this I, is a, I, I tell, I tell Kevin McCarthy, this isn't political. You know, political is they, they impeach Trump and making a phone call to Ukraine. This isn't political. We got a hundred thousand Americans dead. We got over 1400 migrants that died on us soil. We got 31% of women crossing that border getting raped by the cartels. We had, we had, we had, we had 98 non-suspected terrorists arrested trying to stick in this country. We got one million gotaways. This isn't politics. This is about national security and protection of this country. So he needs to impeach Mayorkas. American people want to see Mayorkas impeached. And, and, and McCarthy needs to get with the program and, and, and impeach Mayorkas on day one. If he doesn't, then, then, then I'm extremely disappointed in him. Maybe he's not the right guy. 
Yeah, and there's no guarantee he's going to, he's going to be uh, the, the the majority. Anyway, um, last last question to you is, you know, has anybody that you know of asked this administration why we're sending hundreds of billions of dollars to Ukraine because about two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand Russians came across the border? But we're not spending half of that because of the millions coming across our border. No, you know, you know that's, that's a great question. I, I, I go back to the Trump years. You know what President Trump did? He thought out of the box. Because when he met with the, the leadership of the department and, and, and CBP and ICE, he asked the question, you know, for, for decades, this country has been given millions of dollars millions into Mexico and Central America to try to stop this illegal immigration crisis. Because, you know, it seems like once a decade we have this crisis, and they just keep getting millions and millions of dollars to these countries. And we're going to create opportunity zones down there so these people have an industry and jobs. They don't have to leave the country. It has failed for decades because these countries are corrupt. The money never gets close to those. What President Trump do? He says, I'm not giving them a dime. Matter of fact, I won't take money away. So he threatened to take all the international aid away from these mm-hmm. countries, and guess what? All of a sudden, these countries took action. So President Trump says, I'm not paying. I'm not going to be held hostage and paying these countries. I'm going to take money away if they don't do the right thing. That's what we should be doing. Instead of giving money away just by the millions of dollars to try to buy ourselves out of it, no. Threaten to take money away and watch how quick they turn around. Tom Homan, thank you so much. Uh, if you if you want to follow Tom Homan, uh, check out the Heritage Foundation. And also he is on Fox News frequently, so you can see him there as well. Tom Homan, thank you. Appreciate you, and you have a great week. All right. You have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you. 866-408-7669. If you quickly want to comment on the border coming up, we're going to be speaking with Rich Lowry from National Review on um, his piece out on John Fetterman and his enablers. And also um, we'll talk to him about climate activists and what they're doing, you know, tar- you know, throwing mashed potatoes on priceless paintings because, you know, that solves things. That's that's how you solve the problem. Uh, just, to, just to piggyback off of Tom Homan here, it, it's it's interesting to me, the the gaslighting that is happening, and that's a term nobody used to know what it meant. Now everybody knows what it meant. Uh, just very quickly, I want you to listen to uh, KJP, Karine Jean-Pierre, and what she has to say when she's asked about the border. So since the launch of this joint enforce, enforcement actions, we have seen the number of Venezuelans attempting to, uh, to cross the southern border decrease sharply by more than 85%. So we are doing the work uh, every day uh, to make sure that we deal with what we're seeing in the southern border. So don't believe your own lying eyes <laughs> because um, <laughs> we're doing everything we can. They're, they're just flat out lying. And I get politicians lying. I, I totally get that politicians lie. But um, it's this is too much. All right, your call's coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Mary Walter in for Brian Kilmeade. We were just talking with Tom Homan about the border. And let's go to Alex uh, from listening on the WABC stream yet in California. Alex, you're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Hi. 
Oh, hi. Thank you for taking my call. I just want to say that the open border will not affect just the United States. It will also affect uh, Western countries in Europe and our Western ally in Japan, uh, because the open border will change the United States into a non-Western country and make it into an extension of Latin America. And none of our uh, European nations or Japan has close relations with Latin America because their cultural values are simply too different. That's a very, very interesting point and a very, very uh, brilliant point because you're right. We are becoming, I think we're bringing in for every 10 American children born, the Biden administration is bringing in seven people illegally. So you're looking at almost a huge demographic change in this country. And you're right. It's going to be a huge cultural shift. And the problem is, is it's happening so fast that I don't know how tenable that is. I don't know how that huge shift uh, helps or hurts this country. I don't know how that's going to work. All right. Rich Lowry joining us next on The Brian Kilmeade Show. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. The first day that I'm in office, I'm going to declare a crime emergency and suspend Castle's bail and these other pro-criminal laws because there is a crime emergency. My opponent thinks that right now there's a polio emergency going on, but there's not a crime emergency. Different priorities that I'm hearing from people right now, they're not being represented from this, this governor, who still, to this moment, we're at, what are we, halfway through the debate? She still hasn't talked about locking up anyone committing any crimes. Anyone who commits a crime under our laws, especially with the change we made to bail, has consequences. I don't know why that's so important to you. All I know is that we could do more. Ah, that line right there, that was Lee Zeldin and Kathy Hochul. I don't know why that's so important to you. Did that end uh, maybe what was a possible uh, second term for Kathy Hochul? Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, author of The Case for Nationalism, follow him on Twitter at Rich Lowry, is here to tell us. Rich, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Hey. How's it going? Doing great. So that sentence is like the sentence that was heard around Twitter last night. I don't know why that's so important yeah. to you. <laughs> I saw that everywhere. Uh, did she blow it? Yeah, that was a terrible moment. And she couldn't even say, even when she was finally uh, got pressured into it, she didn't say, we're going to lock these people up. She said, oh, there'll be consequences. You know, yes. she, she was as, as though jail and prison are dirty words, which they are for these for these people. So, uh, you know, she is very vulnerable. She is not appealing in the least. New York is a disaster. That bail law is indefensible. I thought Zeldin was a little jumpy, um, but he was, uh, you know, he, he made all, made all the necessary points. And um, uh, I, I think he, you know, has a real shot, you know. Um, I'd still say it needs to be a big Republican night for it to happen, but um, uh, he's got a real shot. Yeah, I, I do not understand. And I, I live in New Jersey, born and raised in New Jersey. So, you know, my state has been turned blue by people from New York who fled the policies that they voted for. And then they come to New Jersey and then they vote for the same stuff. So I don't see Lee Zeldin winning because there are some people who no matter how bad it gets in New York, they're still going to vote for Kathy Hochul. Can yeah. you 
explain that mentality to me. I don't understand it. They're just dyed in the wool Democrats, you know. So it's uh, um, not, nothing can change them. The the idea that they would vote for a Republican is just totally inconceivable to them. It's just uh, in, in their in their bones. And New York's paid the price, you know. Uh, One-party government is not healthy. You know, Zeldin uh, repeatedly returned to the pay-to-play scandals. I mean, everyone in New York, uh, major officials in New York State, just end up in jail routinely. It's a corrupt state, right. in part because it's a one-party state. Yeah, you, you see that in in a lot of places. I want to uh, play this this clip here for you. This is Kathy Hochul during the debate last night. Uh, excuse me. Uh, this and she says she's focused on bail reform. This is her on on bail reform, and I, I think this was during the debate. This is Kathy. First of all, you can either work on keeping people scared, Thank or you me. can focus on keeping them safe. I have worked hard to have real policies that are making a difference. And as you mentioned, that data is still being collected. But I did focus on bail reform in our budget. That's why the budget was nine days late, because I insisted on common sense changes. And that was during the debate last night. So there she is doubling down on bail reform. This to me makes no sense. To me, Democrats are so smart with the messaging. Like, I would expect her to lie. Right. (laughs) And then just go ahead and do whatever she wants to do. We see that time and time again on both sides. Why is she doubling down? Is she so sure that she's just going to win because New York is blue? It's just this this anti-incarceration sentiment has become gospel among Democrats. Now, a lot of Democrats around the country figured out, wow, this is is terrible for us. And we have to deny that we wanted to defund the police. We have to back off uh, no cash bail. But, you know, she's um, she's supposed to be relatively moderate. Um, she's not. She's uh, part of the the New York Democratic establishment. And they just they just think this is a righteous cause and a, a good thing. And it's terrible. I mean, talk to any New York City cop and they'll tell you um, how terrible this is and how demoralizing it is to arrest people and have them immediately back out on the street. <laughs> It's just so demoralizing to to them, I understand. But we're more concerned about how the criminal feels, right? Like, yes, but what yeah, about the exactly. poor criminal, right? Yeah. It's yeah. insane. It, it, uh, let, let's talk about Carrie Lake. I want to talk about Carrie Lake because you wrote a piece for Politico on Carrie Lake. And Carrie Lake is one of my favorites. And the reason she's one of my favorites is something that I have to give my husband credit for. And I say this all the time. What he said probably two years ago, more than that, more than that, that the Republicans need to elect more women because the women who run on the Republican side don't care, right? They do, mm-hmm. they clearly don't care about re- being reelected again. They call it out. They say what everyone else is thinking, kind of in the vein of Donald Trump, but a little bit classier right, with their words. Uh, but they say what they mean. And he, he talks about, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and, um, uh, Elise Stefanik. And, you know, he names others. Carrie Lake seems to be in that vein. And let me tell you, she, I think, is running a phenomenal campaign. Yeah. I mean, just the the delta between where most people thought she would be, including me, you know, I thought she was a sure loser. And, and what she's done is just incredible. I mean, she's going to win that race, perhaps pretty handily. And a lot of it is just she's a really smooth, unflappable fearless performer. And there's just no substitute, you know, novice political candidates, they get media training, you know, you get like two weeks of media training, you feel, wow, I'm trained up. 
Well, she has more than 20 years of media training because she was on Phoenix TV as a news anchor for 22 years, and people know her. She has built-in name recognition. She has a reservoir of credibility, and she, she loves the camera, and the camera loves her, and she has relentlessly clapped back at the media. You know, mm-hmm. She'll take no guff. Um, she, uh, there was a great incident like a, a week ago where they're like, oh, you're a denier. And, she, and then she had chapter and verse about uh, Democrats denying the election, Republican re- re- election, uh, election victory since 2000. So she's a star. I mean, even if she loses, she, she's going to be a star, but she's, she's going to win that race and uh, instantly be a national figure, I think. You talk about her and Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I know the left loves to mock them, but I'm like, really? Could you look at the squad? Really? You're going to throw stones? But you talk about the loyalty to Donald Trump and the the narrative that the 2020 election was stolen and how the left was pretty sure that that was going to hinder these candidates and be their demise. But it's not, is it? Yeah, and she also, you know, she's she's this is kind of um, typical. Uh, you, you run to the right in a primary, and then you you moderate. In the general election, and she's not talking about the election very much. She had a uh, uh, rally with Chelsea Gabbard a week ago, and all she talked about was we need to make sure our education system is great. We need to deal with our water issues, and we need to control uh, the border and improve the economy. You know, so that's not that's a message that if you're a swing voter, you listen to that. Oh, that's common sense. Um, so she, she's campaigned pretty shrewdly. Yeah. Uh, You also have a piece in National Review, uh, John Fetterman's Enablers Exposed. And the if you were watching comments on social media and and all around people responding to the Fetterman Oz debate last night, you hear about like who allowed this to happen. I I blame his wife, but I blame the media for covering for him for so long. Oh, yeah. yeah, because there was it, an item in, in Politico today about how one reason they did the debate is that they figured that the media could help spin it for him as a, as a, as a great victory. They said he showed up. That didn't happen because there was just no spinning that performance. It was terrible. It was painful. I felt sorry for him. He He's recovering from a, a really serious uh, medical incident, and he shouldn't have been on that stage, and he shouldn't be in this campaign. And the idea that he's repeated and his apologists have repeated that he just mushes a a word together um, uh, uh, every now and then is completely false. It's just just a lie, And, and we saw it exposed last night. Yeah, it, it, it was terrible. Like you, I felt sorry for him. A lot of people did. But when you have like CNN having a roundtable to discuss the debate and everybody is saying, oh, that was not good, you know it's really, really bad. So let me ask you, right. do we start to see honesty from the media now? Because remember what they did to Dasha Burns from NBC, because she was the one who said, you know, she interviewed him and she had the gall to say beforehand that, you know, he had uh, problems with small talk. We had, we did notice some, some problems with his ability to engage in conversation before and after the interview. She was trashed for that. She was called horrible names. Do we start to see more honesty now? She was savage, um, including by Fetterman's wife who said it was terrible ableism and just imagine if Fetterman prepared for last night he had closed captioning in real time last night and and that's what we heard from him imagine if he doesn't have closed captioning and you just go and try to have a conversation with them which which is what this reporter did prior to their closed caption sit down and she was just accurately reporting what his his confused state and 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 she was obviously right and 
you know, it's one thing for you know someone like me, someone on the right, someone like you to get savaged by you know a, a progressive um, mob on social media. It's another thing for a mainstream reporter. This is something that can destroy your career and your reputation forever. It really matters, and they did that to that that young woman, and it's a disgrace. So do we see honesty coming from the media now? Do we see like very no. meekly they no. start to be honest? <laughs> no. I mean, the, the, I, I think the coverage of the debate has been justly excoriating. And wow, he was just not up for this. I, I think most most journalists have admitted that. But no, you know, they're, they're all of them. They're rooting for the other side. And, and it, even if they try to hide it, they they can't. That's just amazing to me because again, I, I'm I'm not a member of a political party. I'm independent, so because I don't vote for parties. But I would have to say, no matter how much of a Republican I am, it's like how much I lean to the right and how conservative my values are. If John Fetterman, with the you know, with the parties were flipped, I'd have to look at that and go, oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm voting Democrat. You know what I mean? Like I'd, yeah, I'd have I to say, I've got to vote for the other guy. How can I vote yeah. for this? It is just amazing to me that this is a close race don't understand it and maybe in a couple days when we get the the, some new polls we'll find out that it really moved the needle one way or the other but if it didn't i just throw my hands up in the air and like you know what you get the government you vote for stop complaining at that point you know it's 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 just too much uh rich we're running out of time here up against the clock thank you so much great Great conversation uh check him out national review also the author of the case for nationalism and follow him on twitter at rich lowry thank you so much rich all right thank you 866-408-7669-866-408-7669 your comments next on the brian kilmeade show Brian Kilmeade's New York Times bestseller, The President and the Freedom Fighter, is now out in paperback and has a brand new afterword. Go pick it up today, wherever books are sold. More of Kilmeade coming up. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm Mary Walter, sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. If you'd like to join me, it's 866-408-7669. And so we've been talking about the debates. Uh, we were also talking uh, about the border earlier with Tom Holman, earlier this hour with Tom Holman. And one of the things, talking about the border, is you know Kevin McCarthy, according to the Washington Post, told Punchball News, I think the country doesn't like impeachment used for political purposes when he was asked if there would be an impeachment of Biden or officials. And... I don't think that's what the majority of people want. I think the majority of people want Republicans to impeach administration members. And um, because especially after what they did to Trump, not necessarily as a tit for tat, but because what's happening on the border absolutely is dereliction of duty and is endangering our children with the fentanyl and everything else. And it's being done purposefully. I don't know. Sounds like an impeachable offense to me. Let's go to Jerry in Gainesville, Florida, listening on WSKY. Hi, Jerry. You're on the Brian Kilmeade show. Hi. Hi, good morning, Mary. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I think the uh, the border is out of control. Uh, let me just preface my remarks by saying I'm a second-generation American, and I believe that we should have a very vibrant uh, immigration system, but it should be lawful. It shouldn't be unfettered. It shouldn't be uncontrollable. And I think both the Democrats and some of the mainstream Republicans want it um, unfettered because of, one, for political 
gains that the Democrats think they're going to get down the line where these will be potential Democrat voters when they're given amnesty, if they can push an amnesty bill through. And Republicans, uh, mainstream Republicans, want it because it's cheap labor for big agriculture and, uh, you know, factories and things like that. Yeah. I, I think that um, they need to uh, obviously have a means test for immigration and have people that can bring something to the table. And then, if I may be a little cynical, um, I think the reason why they want to push the Venezuelans back to uh, Mexico and have them sort of wait in line for their asylum process is because the Venezuelans, and I know this because I used to live in South Florida, the Venezuelans come from a very socialist, repressive society, very similar to the Cubans. And I believe that if allowed to stay in the country, they will eventually become very strong Republican voters because they know the ills of socialism and how repressive it is and how it, it, it takes all of the economic vibrancy out of the culture, out of the economy, um, and it, it, it limits free choice and free will. And I really believe, like, like, the, like our Cuban brothers down in South Florida, they will become a very strong Republican bloc. And I think that the Democrats see that in a very cynical attempt. I think that's the reason why they're being, in my opinion, singled out or being pushed back down to uh, back down to Mexico. That is a very smart take. I never thought of that. And I think you're probably right. They're they're thinking ahead. Very, very smart, Jerry. Thank you so much. Uh, let's quickly go to Kelly in Springfield, Illinois. Kelly, I've got about 90 seconds here. Hi. Hi, Mary. Thanks for having me on. Good show today. Thank you. Hey, um, I have a take on Fetterman. Uh, they don't really care about uh uh, going after him in the media or anything right now, they're just going to limp him across the line. And I think he'll be just set up for uh, uh, the Democrats to replace him once he gets in. They, they don't care. They only care about him winning. Um, they'll just replace him once he gets in. Uh, but my other take on that is if they have to replace him, would they have to, uh, would that trigger a special election? Or would that uh, new person replacing them uh, finish out his six years? Yeah, I, I don't know. I have no idea. But I've seen a lot of chatter on social media that he's going to step aside once he gets in and his wife, he's going to want his wife to go in. Because when he left Braddock and went to uh, state level and he left, he left Braddock as the mayor, he wanted his wife to take over for him in Braddock. And that did not work. Uh, he wanted her appointed and that went up for a vote and, and that, that didn't happen. So I've seen a lot of chatter on social media that she is, people view her the same as they view Jill Biden, that they want the power. And they're using their husbands. You know, Jill Biden, you know, we've, a lot of people have said, I agree. I don't think she should have ever allowed her husband to do this to himself. I think it's horrible what is happening and what she's allowing to happen. And she's there by his side at every step of the way and, you know, everything. And she, she loves I, I could just get the feeling that Jill Biden loves this. I could be wrong. Uh, but I hear the same thing about uh, Giselle Fetterman, that she is the one who has the personality and is outgoing and is really more the politician in the family than John. So who knows? And that's a great question. I, I, I don't know exactly how that would work. I'm Mary Walter, and you are listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. 
Mary Walsh is sitting in the seat for Brian Kilmeade. Big thank you to Brian for allowing me uh, to sit here with him. Just uh, a note uh, people have asked, and so I wanted to let you know, yes, I do have a podcast. I have two on Tuesdays, 7.15. Uh, this, you can watch it on YouTube and Getter, and we'll be launching on Apple Podcasts and um, Spotify because it is somewhat visual. Uh, so we do both. We do uh, the video and the audio. And uh, that's, you know, everything but politics. We just have fun. We have a great time on that podcast. So if your brain needs a break, we do that. And then on Thursdays, 7.15, same way to watch, Getter and Spotify. Excuse me, Getter and YouTube you can watch. Uh and then later on Apple and Spotify, hopefully this weekend. And just look for Mary Walter. Just go to YouTube and type in Mary Walter. Same thing on Getter. And the Thursday podcast is politics. And we try to stay away from the stories everybody else is talking about and try to find stories that no one's talking about. And uh, so it's a, a little bit different. And I'd love if you uh, join me. So just look up Mary Walter or Mary Walter Radio on YouTube and or Getter and then um, Spotify and Apple. Let's talk a little bit about crime and the debates and what the heck is happening in this country with John Levine. He's the writer for the New York Post. You can follow him on Twitter at Levine Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N. John, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Absolutely great to talk to you. Uh, we'll start off, obviously, with the, the Zeldin Hochul debate. I want to, you know, the, the big thing everyone's talking about today is obviously the debates because the debates encompass so many national issues. And one of the things in uh, the Zeldin Hochul debate that was covered, obviously, the big thing was crime. And I want to go to this clip of. Um, Kathy, uh, Kathy Hochul and Lee Zeldin's Cut 11, Eric, uh, where she has a line here, and I want to get your take on this line that she says. This is something that a lot of people were talking about today. The first day that I'm in office, I'm going to declare a crime emergency and suspend Castle's bail and these other pro-criminal laws because there is a crime emergency. My opponent thinks that right now there's a polio emergency going on, but there's not a crime emergency different priorities that I'm hearing from people right now, they're not being represented from this, this governor, who still, to this moment, we're at, what are we, halfway through the debate? She still hasn't talked about locking up anyone committing any crimes. Anyone who commits a crime under our laws, especially with the change we made to bail, has consequences. I don't know why that's so important to you. All I know is that we could do more. So, first of all, the line is, I don't know why that's so important to you. Everybody latched on. But also... Uh, they're, they're, they have consequences. It just reminds me when a mother is speaking to a child and tells the toddler there's going to be consequences for your actions. Right? There's, do you want consequences? It sounded to me so condescending and so disingenuous. But um, how damaging was that exchange to her? Yeah, I was thinking like it's my dad. Like, I'm going to turn this car around. Right. You know, and, it's, <laughs> and the car doesn't turn around. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it just shows he's out of touch. You know, this woman doesn't ride the subways every day. No. She doesn't live in a bad neighborhood. She's not at risk of the policies that she's protecting and that she's promoting. You know, so if, 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 if someone gets punched in the face or stabbed or sprayed with something or shoved into a subway track, She's not the one that has to suffer the consequences of, of, of crime in New York City. So, you know, why do you care so much? That was just a remarkable, you know, she, she is elected to represent the people of New York State. And the number one issue, according to all the polls, is crime. And yet she doesn't appear to believe that's an issue. 
So that's where we're at, pretty much. Yeah, it was just so condescending to me. I said, well, why do you care? And then the, you know, the consequences part of it. So right. what baffles me, and I ask this question a lot, because I think this happened, you see this happen all over the country. Californians decide, I can't take this anymore. They, you know, high taxes. And so they leave and they move to Texas or they move to, they move to a red state and then they vote for it and they join the turn Texas blue movement or turn Montana blue. The New Yorkers did it to New Jersey in the, in the nineties, right? They all moved out of New York. They moved to New Jersey and they turned New Jersey blue because they vote for the same thing. So does this even move the needle for her in a bad way uh, when all is said and done? Well, you know, it's funny. I actually think it could end up hurting Zeldin because a lot of people who would vote for him have probably left. <laughs> and they've made exoduses oh. to Florida. And to, and I, you know, I happen to be speaking to you now from Nashville, Tennessee, and that's quite a few of them here as well. Um, the old Pataki-Giuliani coalition of the early 1990s, a third of them have moved or are dead. And it's going to be very, very hard to replace those voters, even – for someone with as many vulnerabilities as Hochul, we have to recognize the reality that it's a very, very democratic state. And even in a national election where it's widely predicted there'll be a red wave, you know, to use the same analogy, there's a very high democratic seawall you have to get over in New York. Yeah, and I, I just don't understand how people I, – I guess I don't understand the disconnect with – people who don't realize that they're voting for this stuff that they're complaining about. That, that to me yeah. is just an amazing oh, yeah. phenomenon. You, 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 see all, you see all the time sort of local people in Florida or, or even here, and they say, please, you're, you're free to come here, but please don't bring what you're running away from. And right. it's really a voter education problem. People don't connect the reason why they want to leave with the voting decisions they're making. They just think that these things are – there's some, you know, New York is not good right now for some reason, and I'm going to just go to another state now and vote for the same things. And there's, yeah. there's a disconnect. That's a problem. Yeah, it's it's. I wonder uh, if we could start a program or something to help people look. This is what you're voting for, and this is what happens. Um, as far as Zeldin goes, though, uh, it, the race is getting closer, and I think it has been. Depending on your source, it's either now a toss up or only you know maybe maybe leaning Democrat as opposed to a sure lock Democrat. Will we get a surprise? Do you think? Do you think it's enough of a of a disgust with crime? And other things that are happening in New York to move that needle for Zeldin? I, you know, anyone that says they know what's going to happen is a liar. Um, But I think everyone, I'll tell you, six weeks ago, two months ago, nobody really thought Zeldin had a chance. And a lot of people were very surprised he would leave a very good job in the House of Representatives for such a long shot campaign. And many other candidates, like Elise Stefanik, didn't want to run. Because it was such a long odds. This is New York State. But no one says that anymore. Um, if you, there's real, I can tell you there's real fear on the, on the Democratic side, on the Hochul side of a potential upset. She's making a lot of phone calls. She's trying to rally donors and activists. And nobody says today that Zeldin can't win. It's, I would still say more likely than not that Hochul wins because we are in New York and we have to be realistic. But the chance of an upset is very, very real. And it could happen. It just, it's just a question of how many of those people, how many of those disgusted people who are not showing up in polls right now, 
are going to come out. And, and also, I think critically important, too, is who stays home? You know, the, the magic number is 30%. Zeldin needs to get 30% of New York City to win the state. That's what, that's what the experts sort of say. Can he do that? Will there be big turnout in the outer boroughs? And will Hochul's prime supporters in Manhattan and the you know, bougier parts of Brooklyn stay home? Those are the important questions. Interesting. Well, let's move to uh, Pennsylvania and Oz and Fetterman. That was another one. Uh, another debate got a lot of buzz uh, last night, a lot of people talking about it. And I think a lot of people watched it just to see how Fetterman was going to do. It was almost like a morbid curiosity that was happening. A lot of people comparing it to, you know, slowing down to see the, tr- the, the car wreck on the side of the road. Was it a car wreck for John Fetterman? It was rough. I mean, he opened the debate by saying goodnight. Yeah. And then it pretty much went downhill from there. And it's terrible. The man had a stroke and the Democratic Party is 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 forcing us an ill man who's who's recovering from a, a, a near death experience onto national spotlight and, and parading him on stage. And I frankly, at times I felt like I was watching a malfunctioning robot and it was it was not an enjoyable experience at all. And I think. There's a lot of things in that race that are outside this debate, which could impact it. But if Fetterman loses, it will be because of this performance. And tied to the fact, I'll remind you that he's continually refused to release his medical records. So you see obfuscation on that issue tied to obvious disability and obvious impairment. And I think most voters are going to look at that and say, what is going on here? And, And the letter that he did present from his doctor, his doctor's a contributor to his campaign. Right. That didn't even get mentioned by the moderators, which I was like, why did you know, the, the doctor is one of these like, you know, campaign donors. So what are we who are we who are we fooling here? That's obviously a charade. He's obviously not well. How unwell? We don't know because they won't release the records. And you know, at the end of the day, I feel people in Pennsylvania need to have representation. It's a six year job. It's a long time. And you're seeing a lot of Democratic pundits on, on Twitter and, and all the rest saying, you know, oh, well, you know, we, 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 he doesn't need to. It's just, you just need to go in and vote yes or no. It's not that common. It's a very easy job. You don't need to necessarily have all the neurons going. And, <laughs> and it's, not, it's not that. I, I saw people tweeting that out. We've come so far in the Fetterman discourse. Two months ago, it was Fetterman is fine. It's fake news. You were getting tagged for misinformation if you said Fetterman was anything other than Shakespeare. And now, now it's like, you know, there was a horse in the 19th century that could, like, count by stomping its foot. And <laughs> it's called oh, Clever Han. I feel like we're almost at that point in, in the discourse. Well, he just needs to stamp his foot, and that'll be yes, and that'll oh, be fine. So <laughs> – if if he doesn't if if he is elected and he can't run the full term or they decide you know what okay we got the seat that's all that matters Fetterman you're out thank you very much can the Democrats just appoint someone to take that seat or would there have to be a special election a lot of people saying you know what he wants his wife in there his wife wants to be in there and that's why he's still in this race well you know it's. It's a good question because the governor's race is, is a very, very salient factor in this race that we're not talking about. Uh, I don't think Oz is going to get any points from Mastriano, who's not, you know, a popular figure, and, and he will drag down Oz. And if, if Fetterman does get over the finish line, it'll be because of uh, Shapiro, the opponent, 
the Democratic uh, governor, gubernatorial candidate. And I would compare the situation. It's a reverse of what you see in Georgia, where you have a very weak Republican candidate in Herschel Walker, who might go over the line because Brian Kemp, the governor there, is very, very popular. But oh, who knows? I, I can't speak to the aspiring, uh, the aspirations of, of Miss Fetterman. But, you know, if, if that's the rumor she wants to be in the Senate, then she maybe, you know, electing her husband would be a good first start. Well, when Fetterman, uh, when John went from being, you know, local local politics, being the mayor to to state politics uh, with the attorney, I think he was state attorney general. Correct. I think that's what he was. Um, That that overlap there. He wanted to his wife to step into his role as mayor of Braddock. And he went to the town council and he asked them to appoint her as the mayor. That's and she that's what they were going to do. And uh, they said, no, we're not appointing her mayor. Thank you very much for your service, and off you go. So that that didn't work there. So the, we've kind of seen, I guess, a whiff of it in the past. One more question right. on the debates. Um, it, it, one thing that struck me last night, I thought the moderators did a phenomenal job. Phenomenal job. They didn't debate the candidates, which you see so often. You know, I thought they yeah. were. I thought they were. They were fair. Uh, but they did cut off John, John Fetterman when it was clear he had no more words left, literally had no more words left. They kept referring to Oz as Mr. Oz. And I thought, you know, how many times are we browbeaten over the head to call Jill Biden Dr. Biden? Right. But, no, that's an excellent point. Was that like a dig? Was that like a slight dig to Oz? There was some controversy in the local Pennsylvania press. I recall about whether to call him doctor or not and whether calling him doctor gives him an unfair advantage. And for what it's worth, you know, Jill, Jill Biden is a doctor of education. Now, I don't want to say that's not a real doctor, but like Shaquille O'Neal is also a doctor of education and no one runs around calling him Dr. Shaq. Oh, maybe we should, you know, yeah. Oz is an actual cardiothoracic surgeon. He's, he's operated on people. He's, you know, he's worked at medical universities. So as far as who is more entitled to be called doctor, I mean, there's no question, but it's Oz. Um, but it's, I think it was part of a broader concession made to, by some who felt it gave him an advantage. But he has every right to be called doctor, and he should be. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, was, just, I was just so, so shocked at the whole Mr. Mr. Oz, Mr. Oz. And I was like, wait a minute. If you're on a plane with Jill Biden and Mehmet Oz and you say, I need a doctor, the last one you want to see jump out of their seats, Jill Biden, right? Right, right, exactly. Yeah. I was even struck in the New York uh, debate where there was just Lee and Kathy. And like even even the moderator is calling her Kathy, you know. So it was a very, very informal first name basis there as well. That is, I, I didn't catch that. That's, yeah, you're right. You're right. That's interesting. I, wow. Uh, we've got more with you coming up. So I want to talk about crime and uh, in nationwide, also in New York and um, in, the, in that debate again. And uh, just, just things happening uh, with Americans and food prices and the concern for that and how that'll affect everything as well. So we've got more coming up with John Levine, New York Post writer. And uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Levine. Jonathan, that's coming up on the Brian Kilmeade Show. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Secondly, if you don't have one of those loans, you just get 10000 written off. It's passed. I got it passed by a vote or two. 
and it's in effect. That was Joe Biden talking about the uh, student debt transfer. John, John, Jonathan uh, Levine from the New York Post is with us. Follow him on Twitter at Levine Jonathan. Uh, so, did uh, when did that vote happen? I must have missed that, John. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what he's talking about with that. There, I mean, it was the student loan cancellation was an executive action. Right. So I, and then it's now being challenged, and maybe it'll go through, maybe it won't. Um, there's a website hasn't crashed, I'm told. So it's going better than Obamacare. But I don't. I don't recall a vote. <laughs> I mean, it, it's yeah. deeply unpopular. It's deeply, deeply unpopular, and I'm surprised more. We didn't hear more about that in, in the debates. But I guess there's only so much time. The other thing, you know, that it did get some discussion we, is about inflation, and a Pew Research poll found that. About 95% of Americans are concerned about the rise in food prices and consumer goods, gasoline, etc. I, right. I, I don't know how long the Democrats can ignore this. Can they just keep ignoring this? Right. I mean, the elephant in the room here is inflation is at a 40-year high, where we've got to go back to the 70s, the, the, the bad old days of the, of the gas lines, before we see something that is worse than what we have now. And it's not, that's, it is what it is. You can't, that's not right-wing misinformation. It's not a GOP talking point. It's just the facts, which are a stubborn thing. And a lot of the Democratic issues, which would be very, very powerful, perhaps in better times, like, you know, abortion being, Roe right. versus Wade being overturned, those don't hit as hard when gasoline is double what you were paying a year ago. Yeah, and, and your groceries are double what you were paying a year ago, and you're yeah. not able to, you know, go on vacation this. John, I hate to cut you off, but we are running out of time. Thank you so much. It was really great speaking with you. Uh, John Levine from the New York Post with us. Follow him, Levine Jonathan, on Twitter. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Mrs. Dixon says that I kept students out longer than any other state. That's just not true. I worked closely with my Republican and Democratic governors, and kids were out for three months. I'm pretty sure I just heard an audible gasp around town when Gretchen Whitmer said that kids were out of school for three months. You know better because your students are the ones that are desperately behind. And the test scores show that she's being dishonest about this. She's being dishonest about even trying to get into these schools to get these schools back on track. Uh, That was an exchange between Governor Gretchen Whitmer and uh, Tudor Dixon, who is challenging her in Michigan. And you, you know, you did hear, you know, they were only out for for three months. (laughs) Like, really? Wow. Because my kids are out for way longer than three months. So let's talk about the effects. We have a new report out now, uh, really gauging what the effects of kids learning uh, being at a school for so long the effects on their learning and their inability to learn joining us is andrew bernstein now he's the author of why johnny still can't read or write or understand math and what we can do about it uh andrew thank you for joining us Uh, this is a fascinating such a timely book so i'm really glad we have you here with us today yeah, thanks for having me on, Mary. Uh, you're absolutely right. This is the this is the issue of our era, and and really has been for the last hundred years because 
the schools have been deteriorating for a century now. It's not just during the pandemic. The test scores have been in the toilet for a long time, and there's a lot of data to support that, Mary. Yeah, so so let's let's talk about that. Let, let's talk about this this the numbers that the new data that was released called the Nation's Report Card shows that a majority of states saw a decrease in math and reading scores among fourth and eighth graders between 2019 and 2022. And the Education Secretary said it's a wake up call. I'm going to ask a dumb question here. How did they not see this coming? Because I remember when this first started, if you were on social media and you pointed to Sweden, which did not keep their children out of school, I was told that by advocating that I want children to die, they're going to bring the disease home to their grandparents and kill them and on and on and on. And we know that none of that happened. And we know that their children didn't suffer this huge setback in reading, writing, math, etc. So how did we not see this coming? Well, there's, I think there's a number of points. First of all, the, it's no secret the school system is controlled by people who politically are leftists, and they're more about control. But leftists care about one thing, Mary, and that's power. Uh, they don't care about education or any or anything like anything like that. And I think the pandemic is just one more you know, piece of evidence to support that. So the pandemic certainly hurt the kids. Uh, you know, being out of school for a year and a half or two years or whatever it was certainly hurt them. But I think we, we shouldn't lose sight, you know, of the deeper the deeper story here, and that is the schools were terrible long before the pandemic. And I can give you some of the some of the scores. The 2019 NAEP, before the pandemic, reading scores dropped in many states from the 2017 NAEP test. Eighth grade, eighth, eighth grade math scores declined in 2019 from already very low baseline. Get this, Barry. This is not funny. I shouldn't have left. The only ones who improved in 2019 from the 2017 results were fourth graders in math who improved one point from 240 out of 500 to 241 out of 500. Now, I was never a great math student, but I know I go into the government schools didn't help that. But I, even I know that 240 out of 500 is 48 percent. It's a dismally failing score, and that's several years before the pandemic. So we need to we need to be clear that the schools were in serious decline long before this 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 disaster just made it even worse. Absolutely. So I've I've long said, and I was saying this when we were all locked down, that I thought that the pandemic was a gift. And you saw it start in Virginia. Thank God for Virginia, who the parents there woke up and said, what my kid is learning in school, because parents finally were in the schoolroom, because the schoolroom was their kitchen, right? And so parents were finally in the schoolroom. And parents finally got to hear and see and listen to what their children were being taught. And their brains exploded. They're like, wait, what? How did parents not know until that time what their kids were learning? Yeah, that's a good question. Parents need to step up here. They really, they really do. They need, they need to do a better job on behalf of their children because in recent years and continuing to our day, the schools do more propagandizing, you know, pushing, indoctrinating kids with leftist propaganda than they do teaching academic subjects. Uh, you know, so, for instance, you know, man-made global warming is destroying the planet. There's dozens of different genders. We could choose any gender we want. Five and six and seven-year-old kids are pushed to choose what gender they are. You know, capitalism is evil. Socialism or even communism is bad. This is what the schools 
you know, very often are pushing. Now, you know, some school districts are better than others, Mary, and there's still a lot of good, you know, classroom teachers. But overall, the schools are pushing leftist propaganda more than they are promoting academic education. And it's a crime. It's, a, it, it's, a, it's absolutely a, a crime. And um, I think, yeah, yeah par- the good news here is parents, not, now that they're waking up, and they know how bad the schools are. Uh, there's a lot they could do. And I think, they, you know, the second half of my book is, you know, what we could do about it. Well, here's what we could do about it. Parents need to pull their kids out of the government schools. The government schools are irredeemable. They can't be changed. They can't be reformed. They, this, this, it's, this, this rot has been going on. This deterioration has been going on for 100 years. And uh, they can homeschool the kids or they can join or form homeschool co-ops, or they can hire tutors. Or you know, you know what's really exciting, Mary? The rise of what they call micro-schools, where, uh, because there's a lot of good classroom teachers who are as, as disgruntled with the school system as the parents are. And they, they're opting out now. And with a few parents, contract with a few parents to start a little small community school in one parent's basement, you know, with three or four families. It's, this is so widespread a phenomenon that even Forbes, Business magazine ran a story on it a couple of years ago. The you know the rise of the micro schools. Uh, the people are calling it the return of the one room schoolhouse, where you have a dedicated teacher who understands that kids need phonics to learn how to read, uh, and, and and the kids need academic subjects. They need to know American history. You know, not not Marxist propaganda. And this is very exciting. I think it's the future of these micro schools or these small community schools. I think are uh, 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 one aspect of, of an improved future in American education. And thank God, like you said, the parents are waking up to the disaster the government schools are. Yeah. So let me ask you, because um, I because I do want to talk more about what parents can do to help their kids. But but before we get there, I just want to go back to something that we you touched on a little bit. And then then we'll we'll come back because we'll take a quick break and we'll come back to you and ask about parents helping their kids. The the role of the NEA and, you know, Randy Weingarten and how closely aligned they are with this administration, how closely aligned they were with the administration and allowed to make the rules, not based on science, not based on medicine. They're not doctors, but based on what the, the teachers wanted. Do we see that? Is this a moment where there is a reckoning for the NEA? I hope so. I mean, the, the teachers unions are, are just a horrific organization. And, you know, like I said, there's a lot of good individual teachers, but the te- the teachers unions are in bed. They, they tend to be extremely leftist in their politics and they're, they're more concerned with propagandizing the kids than they are with, with educating the kids. You know, 1950s, go all the way back to the 1950s, a history professor named Arthur Bestor wrote a really good book called Educational Wastelands. And he talked about the, what he called the interlocking directorate. The, the real powers in the school behind the school system. And he identified, you know, the teachers' colleges or schools of education are one, the state departments of education are two, and the federal department of education, which didn't exist at that time, but it comes into being later. But this is the interlocking directory. This is the powers that be. And, and they have been anti-phonics and teaching reading. They have been anti-academic subjects for 100 years, going back to John Dewey, William Hurt Kilpatrick at Columbia University at the time of World War One. The teachers' unions are, are in bed with that. They, they share these same leftist principles. You know, today the goal is, is not to teach academics, but to indoctrinate with propaganda. Yeah. 100 years ago, the goal was not to teach academics, but to, to train them. Teach academics... That's back in the days when you could IQ test. Today you can't because it's considered racist. But back then, 100 years ago, you IQ test the kids. 
you get the best of the brightest. You teach them the, the full academic program, math, science, literature, history. They go on to college. They become society's future leaders. They govern in the, cla- in, in, the, in the classroom and in the legislature. The rest of us don't need thinking skills, don't need knowledge. We get a modicum of that, but, you know, we get practical skills like, you know, uh, hygiene, driver's ed, sex ed, uh, vocational training, woodshop or agriculture in the rural areas. And we're trained, most of us, the deplorables, as Hillary Clinton called us, uh, we're trained to uh, be good at our jobs and obey the wise rules of the state. That was the goal 100 years ago. It's, it's still the main, the main goal has remained unchanged. We need to learn to obey the wise rulers of the socialist state. And, and that, yeah. that's the reason why they've dumbed down the curriculum. They don't want people thinking effectively. Then, then it's easier to propagandize with the with the leftist indoctrination they ram down the throats of these poor kids. We've got more coming up with Andrew Bernstein. He's the author of Why Johnny Still Can't Read or Write or Understand Math and What We Can Do About It. And so parents, because there is a section in the book about what you can do about it. And really, the the first part of the book, you you really get a really in-depth look at what is happening in the classrooms besides not just your kids' classrooms, but in schools in general in this country. It is going to shock you so more with andrew bernstein coming up on the brian kilmeade show challenging conventional thought and wisdom you're with brian kilmeade if you're interested in it brian's talking about it you're with brian kilmeade Mary Walter in for Brian Kilmeade, my guest, Andrew Bernstein, the author, author of Why Johnny Still Can't Read or Write or Understand Math and What We Can Do About It. And that part of it, I think, is a big problem, a big concern for parents. What the heck can I do? I've seen my kids suffer during the pandemic. I've seen my kid lose interest in school. Their love of reading is gone. My kid can't add anymore. They have seem to have lost skills that they previously had. And that is a big part of this book. One thing I want to ask you uh, about is what I noticed, and we started talking about this during the break, is, you know, I got, a, I got a thank you note from my niece who's getting married. So she's of marrying age. She's like 30 years old. And I got a thank you note, and I'm shocked, I'm pleased that a thank you note was written, but it was printed. None of my younger nieces can write cursive. They print everything. I was like, well, how do you sign a document if you can't write in cursive? And how do you read things that are written in cursive? Why right. is that? Why did we stop teaching that? I just have to know. Do you have any idea why we stopped teaching our children how to read and write cursive? Uh, you, you know, Mary, um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a writer, first and foremost, also a college professor. Yeah, I have to write on the board now in, in print because so many of the, of the kids can't, can't read cursive. It's just one more step in dumbing down the curriculum. It, it's, it's fitting. It, go, it goes together with abandoning phonics for the whole word method, which is a dismal failure in teaching yes. reading. A uh, hundred years ago, and you know, another uh, piece of the puzzle here that's congruent with what you're talking about is uh, they did away with history more than a hundred years ago, replaced it with some weird hybrid called social studies, whatever that is. You know, and it means different things to different school districts and different things to different teachers. They still teach some history, but very little. Uh, I, 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 I don't, I don't want to embarrass anybody. I won't mention any names. I had 20 college students in a logic class a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic. You know, and, and I, I teach philosophy, and it deals with you know high level abstractions. So I need a lot of examples, and I used to be able to take a little bit anyway, take examples from literature and from history. But 
they don't teach American history anymore, and it's been declining for many years. So I've, I've mentioned James Madison. I had 10 out of 20 American college students never heard of him. They never heard of James Madison. What? Ten of them knew. Yeah, 10 of them knew he'd been president, but not one out of 20 knew that he was the lead author of the U.S. Constitution and virtually the sole author of the Bill of Rights. They teach very little American history now. And worst of all, maybe, is what little American history they teach. They use Howard Zinn's book, you know, oh. People's History of the United States, which is – Howard Zinn wasn't just a Marxist intellectual. According to the FBI, he was a member of the Communist Party. He was a wow. member of CPUSA, and a people's history of the United States is, a, is pure Marxist communist slur against America. It's, it's horrifically dishonest, and that's the book that's often used in the rare cases where they teach American history in the first place. So uh, the, doing away with cursive, Mary, is just one more step in dumbing down the, the curriculum. Yeah, and if if they're if the populace is dumb, uh, if they're if they've been dumbed down, they're very easy to control. We, we're running out of time here, so just I have this question. You know, you, we touched a little bit on how parents can help, and I know that's a big part in your book. And you talked about you know t- pulling the kids out of school and sending them to private school, and you know maybe getting together with other parents and doing like a hiring a teacher type thing. What about parents though who don't have the means to do that? Don't have they, you know they're both working, they can't stay home and homeschool their kids. They maybe don't have the means to put the kids kids in a private school, what are the options for them in about well, 90 seconds here? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. First of all, the, the single most important cognitive skill is reading. And, and parents can do this. It's not hard. You take the kid to the library or the bookstore, you know, like on a, on a Saturday or, or whatever, uh, you know, and um, you let the kids, at two years old, I did this with my daughter, let her or him pick out a book that they like. Uh, and then, you know, my daughter picked out these, these goofy books about dogs that could fly and kittens who thought the uh, full moon was a bowl of milk. But to her, it was fun. And then I read it to her, and she found out reading's fun, that there's cool stuff in books, there's fun stuff in books. You can do that when the child's two, you know, and then the child's motivated. He or she wants to learn how to read, doesn't want to depend on mom or dad or the teacher. And by the age of four or five, you could, you could use in systematic phonics, teach the kid, you know, the, the, the sound of all the letters and how to sound out letters. And sound out words on the page. Even even in English, eighty seven percent of the language is is regular and can be sounded out. And you've given the kid the gift of reading, which opens up the whole world of knowledge to them. Any parent can do that, no matter how busy they are. That's that's certainly certainly one one thing they could do. Hiring tutors is not that expensive because you can get graduate students. You could be in Michigan and you can have a, a you know you want a, a teacher in history who's getting a PhD at the University of Oregon. You do it online and they're graduate students, they're poor, you know, they then they you could get them cheap. You could get experts in their subject matter cheap. And you could do this uh, varsitytutors.com. You can find experts in their subject matter uh, which most high school teachers aren't because they're not studying history. They're studying education. They're not studying math. They're studying education. You can get tutors or get PhDs in history or chemistry or, or math, you know, and hire them cheap because they're in grad school and not working full time. And they know the subject much better than the government school teachers do. And they're relatively inexpensive. That's another thing that parents can do for their kids. There's a whole bunch of things they can do. My book, my book talks about it, Mary. Yeah, the book is Why Johnny Still Can't Read or Write or Understand Math and What We Can Do About It. And I'd also like to add, and why Johnny can't read the Constitution, because Johnny can't read cursive, and why Johnny can't tell the clock if the battery dies in uh, in the... (laughs) 
<laughs> the digital yeah. clock. Why Johnny can't tell what those hands mean on the clock. <laughs> yeah, why Johnny can't add, you know, when you go to when you go to get some burgers at Five Guys, you know, and they can't add the give you money to give you change. It's heartbreaking because my students are good kids, Barry. These are good American yeah. kids, but but many of them struggle just to read. They certainly can't write a college level essay. They don't know any American history. Uh, it's heartbreaking. They're good kids, but they've been robbed of the education they deserve to have. Yeah, and parents can help. Thank you so much for your time and for this book and for helping parents, you know, help to help to claw back the damage, some of the, some of the damage that has been done by our education system. Thank you, Andrew Bernstein. Really oh, yeah. appreciate welcome, you. Thank, yo, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on, Mary. Absolutely. And thank you, Brian Kilmeade and Allison and Eric and Pete for having me sit in the seat for Brian Kilmeade with you. I am loving this. You're listening to the Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.